how we how we looking, Pat? We all good? Uh, uh. Beautiful. I mean, we always look good, you know. Well, well, yeah. I say we, we try. I mean, wow, rude. Hey guys, welcome back to the Alfredo's podcast, official podcast of digital and creative media works. Where each week we take some from pop culture and try to break it down to better understand it. My name is David. Hello, my name is Ben. Uh, Benjamin, we're back. Uh, yes, that we're is in the- my full birth name you <laughs> thanks for calling me that i do that when i'm trying to like i don't know i go into like producer mode when I'm you like need benjamin. some more syllables to think yeah it's it's a good benjamin. stalling good stalling mechanism right uh and speaking of stalling nope not a segue this month we're talking about like uh auteurs um and we've kind of been deving delving delving into um sort of what makes auteurs what we think works about a lot of the the pieces they put out and then maybe what doesn't um I apologize in advance. I'm very tired. <laughs> yeah, as you can see, I'm I already, don't apologize for advance. I'm already not thinking. I'm also straight, very tired, so that's fine. This week, you know, we we last week we talked about Reservoir Dogs um, by the one of the auteurs, Quentin Tarantino. So the boy, the man, the myth, the legend himself. Exactly, and largely in preparation for this film we're talking about this week because we're talking about the style of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Wowee, wowee! It's a 2019. <coughs> Uh, comedy drama written and directed by Quentin Tarantino set in the closing of 1969, Hollywood's golden era. That's the sex number. That's the sex for all of you at home. Summer of love, baby. Before we get into the summary, I wanted to... Man, what a film. What a yeah, film. What did you think of it? Because <laughs> people's opinions range from it's the best it's thing the best since film ever made and to like, like, yo, what the fuck is this shit? But I just kind of walked out of it and I was like, okay... Like, I feel like with a lot of Tarantino's films, it takes me a while to get them. Yeah. You know, like, you know, like Pulp Fiction, like it's your 10th viewing where you're like, oh my God, this is <laughs> you under- You finally understand how but the order of the scenes. Yeah. This one, like, it wasn't that complicated and I just don't know if I got it or not. It's very much a film where it's, it's so on like the cusp of being a film that gets overanalyzed, mm-hmm. but I don't think it like, it doesn't present too much of like a, like a smarty pants aura. Right. To where it's gonna sort of garner that level of like scrutiny, right? I still think it's worthy of scrutiny in terms of like sort of diving and investigating, but like, yeah, I think I think it's a there's like a lot of meat to this film, but it's there's also just not a lot. There's op- it's, it's like a, a very it's... lean beef. It's not very fatty. Well, it's I, see, I don't know. I felt like the opposite. Where I felt like a lot of it was fluff, like just them driving around in the cars and shit. But, yeah, you know, like there's a lot of screen. So what I mean is, uh, there's a lot of screen time. Of things that I didn't necessarily go, oh, that that's adding to the film. But then maybe that that was his point. I don't know. It just felt like uh, kind of slow and long. I don't know. It didn't feel that long. I didn't like. It, it's a two and a two hour forty five minute film. Yeah. And I, it didn't really, it didn't feel like a three hour film. And I think part of that is that you know when you've got a three hour film like I don't know like King Kong mm-hmm. or. Like the Lord King of the Kong's Ring. probably a good touchstone because that's like because King Kong has like three climaxes. Yeah. Whereas this has one, one, and it's big, and it's big, and it's right at the end. So you you know normally when like in these big long films, I'm like I'm I'm fucking fanging a piss at the end by it. Right, because it's like with King Kong, it's like they, we had the big fight with King Kong on the island, and then they then and they, they escape the island, and then, and the then there's a New York, the New York, and then there's another yeah. fight at the end, and you're yeah. like, oh my god, and I like need to the, piss. And you know, and like in, in Infinity War, it's like you know they you they have the big fight at the end. You're like, all right, this is the big fight, but you've still got like 20 minutes left. Did is we this... did we piss in Infinity War? We did. Think... We did go piss. Did we? What? Oh no, we pissed in Endgame. No. We I was, pissed I was in Infinity War. No, wait, we, did we piss in Endgame? I no, we did, we did not. Okay. We did not piss in Endgame. 
Um, <laughs> welcome to <laughs> welcome to the piss hour. Welcome to this. Um, I did not piss in this film. Uh, neither did I. I. Definitely needed to. I had... But again, it's like I normally I'll like I'll be like, oh, the climax is nearly here. And it's like, all right, I only have to wait like ten more minutes. And it's like the climax happened, and then the film just ends, and it's like, oh, okay, that's nice. It's, it's neat. <laughs> I can yeah. leave. It's Tarantino being like, okay, you're done. Yeah, which okay, I'm, I'm fine with. So let, let's get into the summary, I guess, and then see what we can work out from this film. I'm I'm going to use this episode. Episode I was saying to Pat before we started recording. I'm going to use this as an opportunity to decide whether I liked it or not because I don't know. Yeah, same. I don't um, know. Either. So maybe by the end of it, we'll find out. Who knows? <laughs> <What are> we? <laughs> maybe we will. What an adventure you're going to come on with us. Oh, come with us on this journey through sight and sound. Rick Dalton, former 50 star of Bounty Outlaw, fears his career has gone over the hill. His casting agent suggests he'll likely take villain roles in spaghetti westerns and watch his career circle the drain until he's too old to give a shit. Cliff Booth, Dalton's stunt double and longtime friend, drives Dalton around as they wallow in nostalgia, and due to Booth being out of work, just kind of helps Dalton do regular tasks. Booth is mired by Hollywood since the death of his wife under suspicious circumstances. Meanwhile, Dalton's new neighbors, actress Sharon Tate and her husband, director Roman Polanski, are of keen interest to Charles Manson. While driving Dalton's car, Booth picks up a young hitchhiker, Pussycat. He drops her off at Spa Ranch, where Booth once filmed Bounty Law, and where the Manson family now resides. Booth is suspicious of the large number of hippies squatting on the property, and suspecting they are taking advantage of the owner, George Spa, goes to investigate. After a brief scuffle, Booth leaves the ranch. Dalton lands the role of a villain in the pilot episode of a new series, Lancer. He decides to give it his all to prove, once and for all, that he is indeed an actor of substance. Dalton, hungover on set, struggles with his dialogue. After having a mini breakdown in his trailer, Dalton returns to the set and delivers the most powerful performance of his career, and it impresses everyone. With his newfound success, Dalton takes Booth with him for a six-month stint in Europe, during which he appears in two additional westerns and a Eurospy comedy, and returns to Los Angeles with a new wife. Dalton decides to leave the acting business behind, and he and Booth agree to go their separate ways. They go out for celebratory drinks and return to Dalton's house, where Booth smokes an acid-laced cigarette and takes Brandy, the dog, for a walk. Meanwhile, Manson's followers park outside in preparation to murder everybody in Tate's house. Dalton hears the car and angrily orders them to leave. The group decides to kill Dalton instead. They break into Dalton's house and confront Booth, who recognizes them from the spa ranch. Booth then orders Brandy the dog to attack, and together they kill Cranwinkle and Watson and severely injure Atkins. Atkins, gun in hand, stumbles outside, alarming Dalton, who is listening to music on his headphones, oblivious to the mayhem within. Dalton retrieves a flamethrower kept from a film shoot, and Atkins is incinerated. The injured Booth is taken to the hospital. Tate then invites Dalton over for drinks with her house guests. Sebring, Abigail Forger, and Vershek Falaisky, revealing she's a big fan of his work all along. Dalton, finally, is one of the cool kids. Credits. This fucking film, man, it's just so weird. It's so weird. <laughs> my, my, like, reaction, sort of, like, at, like, after the film, like, throughout the film, I was like, oh, this has all been fairly just not a lot happening, surprisingly not violent yeah. for a Tarantino, violent film. a Tarantino film. And then, like, that ending happened, and I was like, like oh, you know, it was like, I think the turning point for me in this film was when, um, when Cliff Booth just, like, baseball chucks the can at what's her name's face. And, like, in any other, like, comedy film, it would just, like, bounce off her face. She'd be like, ouchie, wouchie. But it, like, caves her nose in, and she spends the rest of the scene screaming. Yeah, it's a lot. And I'm like, oh. Tarantino's back, baby. <laughs> Tarantino's the Tarantino. It, man, I guess, okay, a lot of people 
similar. Okay, this thing happens. Okay, what this, what this, should I think based on the crowd? This thing happens when Tarantino film comes out, which is everybody goes, it's too violent, we don't like it, it's crude, it's gross. And, you know, the, the normal media, like, the, the kind of conservative media is like, this guy is the devil, he should be stopped. It's just so much fun, Jan. Yeah, exactly. And and that's fine. Except when Jackie Brown came out and everyone was like, this film is genius. Because apparently that gets a pass. Um, but I guess, like, a lot of critics didn't seem to get the film at all. Um, and this this is kind of one of the, the things I wanted to start with, because it should inform, I guess, the rest of our discussion. But Richard Brody of The New Yorker called the film, quote, an obscenely regressive vision of the 60s that celebrates white male stardom at the expense of everybody else, end quote. And to me, I guess the question that raises is, should we aspire to be like Dalton she, like it, obviously Tarantino's painting this era in a certain you know th- through certain rose tinted glasses trying to celebrate yeah. this era in Hollywood but I, th- I think one of the things that is being asked a lot with these critics is <laughs> is this in 2019 like should is Dalton idolized and if he is that's a bad thing presumably but the question is is he and that's what I want to try and work out through this film because I guess you've got these two oppositional readings right so one is that and this is assuming that like this is how you read the film not about Tarantino's intent Dalton is glamorized and we should celebrate these type of stars or Hollywood's memory of itself uh sort of leaves out these self-serving white guys who kind of use everybody around them and ignore everyone else and it kind of buries the cost of that stardom And I guess my thought around this is that Dalton idolizes Tate's lifestyle, right? But we spend a whole day with her just doing regular normal person stuff. Like, she just has a normal day. Like, there's no Hollywood lifestyle to idolize. It doesn't really exist. She just is a person. But he spends the whole filming like, I wish I was one of those people. You know, I've, I've gone over the hill on this faded star. So the fact that even these Hollywood elite have a very boring and normal lifestyle. So are we to believe that Tarantino idolizes this, the myth of Dalton and these stars, or or is he more interested in Tate, this regular person? I th- I think there's there's at least like what something that I kind of gathered gathered from this film, which I think is kind of related to that. A lot of the, the film talks a lot about sort of you know like the the violence that gets shown in like these these Hollywood films. Mm-hmm. You know, like the like Dalton talks about it to his agent, where he's just like, oh, there's a lot of killing. Mm-hmm. You know, the the um the Mason followers talk about it at the end of the film, which is like, oh, let's kill the people who taught us how to taught kill. Us how to murder or whatever, yeah. And it's like, they've painted this world where like people are aware of the fact that these films are very violent. But whenever we have these like on set or like in cinema perspectives, we don't actually really see any of that. Like you don't see- In the films you mean? Yeah, in the, in the films that like the bits of the films that they show us, they don't show any of the violence except for at the end when they're watching my FBI and- like two guys get shot okay cool whatever but like you know when he's on the set of that new pilot that he's on that where he's where he's the villain like no one there's no like explicit like murder Mm. shown Mm -hmm. you know not to the same degree that you know if if we're sort of you know that kind of like our movies are so violent it it feels definitely like a you know like you know tarantino gets a lot of flack for making Mm -hmm. quote-unquote violent films so it definitely feels like a he's sort of like speaking out and saying like, oh, you know, everyone thinks that these films are violent. He shows like this whole film with like barely any violence except for like the bash up at the at the ranch. So, yeah. But it, then he he not that he bookends, but he ends the film on like probably like one of the most just like overly violent scenes. Yeah. Even for him, it's pretty bad. Even for him, it's pretty bad. Like, you know, it, it starts off as like, oh, they're getting held up. And then it's like, OK, there's like a dog biting you know, there's a dog biting this dude's hand. Okay, like, that makes sense. It's a dog. But then it's like, you know, she gets a can thrown in her face and a mm. nose caved in. You're like, uh, 
And then he's just going around, just like, he curve stomps one guy. He like fucking smashes this girl. And it's like, you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah, it, it is weirdly like meta cinematic in that way, I guess. Where, like, and then he, walk, he comes out with a fucking flamethrower. Don't get me started. Like, on that. That's just, like crazy. It's, it's, he's just like, you thought, it's just so ridiculous. It's, I, I guess what he's saying is like, it's not these like, if it was movies making people violent and these violent movies existed back then, we would have always been violent, I think is yeah, what he's like, saying. Yeah, he's like, like, he's like, it's not. People would just whip out their flamethrowers. It's not, it's not the films that are making people violent, you know. One of the things I notice about this is it, it occurs at the end of The Summer Love. It's no coincidence to me that this Hollywood that it depicts is far less divided than, I guess, the world we live in now. Um, there's, like, very little kind of division um, in general. And it's not until, like, true real violence is imparted on the world that The Summer of Love ends. Like, it, it's not until that end scene when, like, you know, the flamethrower is brought out. Like, <laughs> that's, like, the end of The Summer of Love, just, effectively, yeah, timeline-wise, right? It's just ridiculous, yeah. So, to me, it's it's no coincidence that... Tarantino seems to be suggesting that that cinema is a device in this way, I guess, like cinema as the thing that Dalton and Booth and everyone who's in Hollywood come together to make. It gives them like this common discourse and this like community and it doesn't cause violence. In fact, in a few instances throughout the film, it actually avoids violence because they sort of like they're working together. Whereas, like, normally I think someone like Dalton would rub a lot of people the wrong way, but they're like, oh, no, he's a, he's this good actor, he knows what he's doing. Whereas I think, like, Manson's followers seem to believe that it is the cinemas. Like, what you were saying, like, it's, oh, well, the, the film's taught us how to be this way. And, like, even the, you know, the, <laughs> the scene where um, Cliff is driving, oh, what's her, what's her name? like cuddle or something driving her back to the to the ranch and yeah. she's like oh can i suck your dick while you're driving and he's like you want to give me some of that some of that photo id it's like this weird just like be responsible kids don't let random don't let people random suck your people dick suck in the car dick. it's <laughs> if you're gonna get roadhead gets get legal make sure you get some id that's <laughs> like, right it's so weird and like obviously like because that wouldn't happen in a film no, it wouldn't happen in a... T- you don't expect that to happen in a Tarantino well, film Well, I mean, like, well. in any film. Like, why would that happen? Like, why would you put that in a movie? Like, do you know what? It, like, there's, yeah. something, there's something that's commenting on that where it's like, oh, no, this real life isn't like... And even when there's, like, other very cliche things with the whole, like, you know, the third time he drives past her, he's, you know, he's, you know, he's he's going to pick her up because she just had be happy. You know, she's gone the right way. It's like, oh, you know, that's like a very cliche thing. And she's, she, even she's like, oh, third time's a charm, I guess. You're like, yeah, I didn't see this one coming. There's so many like cliches and they, they'll like bounce off the cliches into just these like ridiculous territories and then like come back and bounce off another mm-hmm. cliche. Like, you know, when he's, when he's at the ranch and he's like, I'm going to go check on my friend. And there's this massive build up where you're just like, oh, like this whole time I was just like, oh my God, like, what are they leading up to? Like, what could it be? Like, like is he dead or is he like is he like strapped to a wall like what the fuck he's doing it's just like no it's just what they said he yeah. just he just gets he just gets mm. poon and he's blind and he watches my fbi because they all well, they all watch well, my cause, fbi because well, everyone watches the same stuff right? <laughs> yeah <laughs> so like i mean I, I guess then it's no coincidence that we see a lot of tv and film and like th- there's a lot Jesus of a lot Christ. of media in this film yeah tvs are on in every single home we visit and to quote Watsky, uh, not about this film, but I, th- I think this quote perfectly summarizes why, like, what Tarantino is trying to say. Quote, The only material that worked consistently from Appleton, Wisconsin to Minot, North Dakota, was pop culture. I knew the references didn't make my poems good, but celebrity gossip is like sports or the weather. Cheap Elmer's glue for people who can't figure out another way to bond. 
end quote. <laughs> and I think like that's kind of Oof. the the homogenization of Hollywood that we see in this, where it's like one big happy family, one big kind of like you know it's that hippie kind of mentality of like it's this big commune of except they all hate hippies. creativity. Except they all, that's I guess the irony, right? <laughs> um, like and you know these days a lot of artists would call that like the death of culture of when like everyone's together making the same shit. Right. But I think maybe Tarantino saying that back then. There was something magical about the naivety to be like, yeah, we all just like films and we all sit down at night and we all watch the same TV and everyone can go to the water cooler and talk about it tomorrow. And like the only Asian person in the film is like this crappy like Bruce Lee ripoff. Right. Everyone learns like their film martial arts from this Bruce Lee ripoff character. He was like the funniest character in the entire goddamn film. Yeah, it's like it's this weirdly just like. I don't know, like spread butter homogenous community that this guess, film portrays. I guess the question would be, given that what we know about Tarantino and his kind of his idolization of this time period and it's kind of Hollywood that we don't have anymore. I think maybe he's because he said before, like this, he's he's got I think one or two films left that he's going to make. I think definitely he's feeling like he doesn't have a place in cinema anymore. I guess he's looking at this world, but like Game of Thrones was like the homogenization, like yeah. it was like a homogenous thing that like everyone shared for a little bit of time. Whether it's good or not is neither here nor there, but it was something that became it was common discourse for a while. And I, I think we're getting less and less of that as media is becoming less and less centralized. And so the question is, well, you know, in this environment, does Tarantino believe or is his film trying to say, should we go back to this homogenized Hollywood where everyone's making spaghetti westerns? If you're not making them the correct way, yeah. then you're out. Yeah. Or should we allow for this diversity? And I guess he's saying, I don't think he has an answer in this film. I think this film's pretty different to other films that are currently out there. So I feel like it's almost, you know, it just kind of speaks for itself. In yeah, the sense that he's he doesn't, like, yeah. someone needs to be making this stuff. Yeah. But then he's going, well, I don't know if I want to do this forever. Because he sort of seems to be. Yeah. And it's 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 interesting that this this film has nothing in it. Like Margot Robbie is like she's like in headline act. She's on the she's on the poster. She's in the you know she's in the everything. Right. She has like ten things. Yeah, and she has like her role in the film is confusing. If anything, mm. it's it's really just sort of you know she exists to just kind of be a third point that you jump to when th- you're not jumping she, between cliff. I think she exists to humanize Tate before the end of the film. I don't know. My my impression is like he did that to be like, hey, this was a normal person before all this stuff happened. Yeah, and like it, it helps the end of the film obviously because you you know you spend the whole film bouncing between essentially these two worlds, kind of a third one with Cliff. But and you know it it wouldn't really have worked as well if well I don't know because there's some weird imagery at the end when the gates open and he like literally walks into heaven. Like that's it's just so on the nose where it's so obviously the pearly gates. Okay, we've got that metaphor. Then then what was you know, when we were following her around on a day when she go watch the films, like is is she Jesus? Is she Jesus? Like what do we what do we take from that? Like I, she's she's known by a few and like, you know, she'll be like, I am in this film, be like, Oh yeah, kinda yeah, yeah kinda like she's like uh, she's so B, right? Like, is she Jesus? I, I think maybe she's she's the is she Jesus? I don't know, man. Is she I, like the second ju- coming where everyone's just like, yeah, sure, whatever. You're Jesus. Fine. I don't think Tarantino thinks that far into his imagery. I just think he went, that's a cool reference. Let's do something <laughs> weird with it. Because the he, film's over. Duh, game theory. He actually died, and those were the uh, Pearly Gates. Fuck me. That's going to happen. That's kind of what I get to when it, it's like, like this film is on the edge of being analyzed to but shit. But like, Tarantino's like obsessed with references and intertextuality and stuff right like i think that's just another one of them where that's yeah. you can pass it for a hundred times and you wouldn't get to the bottom of it i mean this this film even has like chekhov's giant painting of tate's face 
Yeah. And it's like nothing happens with it. I was waiting for someone to fly through it. I was waiting for it to get filled with bullet holes. I was waiting for it to get caught on fire. There was so many of it. And in, in, there was so many like little <laughs> things like that in this film. Yeah. Where you're just like, that's definitely going to be called back to it. It just well, like, doesn't happen. Like Dalton's car is the same Cadillac uh, that Vic Vega drives in uh, uh, Reservoir Dogs. Right. Oh, um, I mean, he like when when we first go to Cliff's house... Reservoir Dogs starts playing in the cinema. It starts playing the Your Feature presentation, I know, which is at the start of Reservoir I, Dogs. Some, I, that is yeah. like a generic but it, Your Feature presentation, but it's at the start of Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And when did Reservoir Dogs come out? I don't know, like the six. Oh no, like, like 69. No, no, no. No, no. <laughs> no. no it was way off. Hang on. I've got it in my You've got it in your notes. notes. Hang on. We're going to do some quick facts. I was like, one thing I was meaning to be like, wasn't there? No, 1992. Yeah, no yeah. idea. Um, um, but like, still, you know, that opening like your feature presentation there's like so tarantino well, now he, he, this is like the first one that has kind of references his own work more so like um obviously you know the title isn't a reference to his own work but it's a reference to once upon a time in the west and once upon a time in america which were to sergio leone uh post westerns but what's interesting is killing the nazis with a flamethrower like is an obvious reference to inglorious bastards oh yeah like and i was like Oh, so you're just going to talk about yourself? Like, because a lot of his films, and we'll get to it in a minute, like a lot and of like his films the, don't reference each other. Well, even like the, the Great Escape bit, where it's like yeah. a reshot of The Great Escape. No, it's it's The Great Escape, but they've, they, it's actually, it's not. It's it's actually the footage, and they use CGI or something yeah, to yeah, replace yeah. the face. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's this weird, like, that's weird. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I mean, he also. Is um, it a deep fake? It's probably a deep fake, I, hey? I don't know they for probably, sure. But they probably, probably use probably. deep fakes, yeah. Um, so, like, also, Tarantino has a bunch of brands that he's invented that appear in this film so big kahuna burger uh yeah. chattanooga beer uh, wolf's tooth dog food and red apple cigarettes just to name a few oh, yeah, wolf's tooth, yeah that kind of leads me to like this this whole referencing thing that he does that like a lot of the time he'll reference things in hollywood but the, <laughs> the but the world that exists in the films doesn't always exist in parallel no. with our world it's like the tarantino cinematic universe but then sometimes it isn't sometimes it's our world so right. it gets really confusing <laughs> so i want to talk about this idea that this kind of film spark that i wanted to dive into which is something that i was reading about a few weeks ago when we were preparing for reservoir dogs and it's a, an idea by michael renee um they published in the journal of pop culture in 2012 that's a thing yeah it's not a great journal um <laughs> And Renee posits this idea he has about Tarantino specifically, which right. he calls the director as DJ, which is not a response to auteur theory, but more, in my view, like kind of an evolution of it. Yeah. So Renee is specifically interested in what makes a director into an auteur in modern culture. So, you know, obviously, like previously when it was like you were making films with like one camera and like two actors and like a, not really a set, just whatever. Like an auteur is easy to come by. Go through French yeah. New Wave cinema. You can easily identify them, right? So... Renee's more interested in what does that look like in a modern context when you have 500 people working on a film. Right. So he says, quote, just because a director can market himself to an audience, he does not necessarily become an auteur. He must still create a viable product to market. If the celebrity director's films were to fail consistently or be ignored by the box office, then he would no longer fit this definition of an auteur. Thus, there is an inherent connection between the film text and the claim of the auteur status. The text produced by a celebrity slash auteur director must be studied in order for us to truly understand him, end quote. So what he's kind of getting at is that if, by definition, an auteur makes a singular product, uh, it has to be analyzed and found to be good and to have substance for them to be an auteur. Right. That seems to kind of go without saying. Like, you could argue that um, Michael Bay is an auteur of sorts. He is. Big time. But you don't put him <laughs> in the same category as, like, Tarantino. No, but he deserves it. 
who michael bay yeah michael bay yeah probably right absolutely um dude's like, a legend he has such a defined <laughs> style yeah like voice like of, of all the directors we have currently where it's just like oh they've got a certain they've got a certain style this way they were like everyone everyone people sleep on michael bay like he's got a style it's just you know <laughs> it's just military funded it's military funded and weirdly sexist yeah um <laughs> So Rene goes on to talk about Smith and Holmes' definition of Tarantino as an as a DJ rather than auteur. Uh, quote: They loosely define Tarantino as director as DJ because this cut and paste, mix and match directorial style is similar to that of a music DJ who borrows sounds from older songs and combines them to create a new song through sampling. End quote. So is he more of a because di- like an auteur is like the the artist who never uses the samples; they come up with their own like you know right music and stuff. Whereas like I think maybe the idea is. <laughs> Tarantino's at the back coordinating all of these existing elements into something new. I think like there's there's another sort of talk done by yeah, someone called every what is it? It's like everything's a remix. It takes that idea of uh director as DJ and just applies it to all pop culture. Mm-hmm. Just says nothing's original. Everything references. like everything references something else. Even if you think you're doing something original, because of just the nature of study and the nature of analysis of art what you are doing can be tied to existing works and even if like you're you know let's say you're let's say you're an artist you have zero classical training zero anything you don't know shit you've just thrown some crap onto a canvas there's a category for you which is grouped up with all the other people who haven't had any official training Mm -hmm. and who don't who never studied and just threw shit onto a canvas so like even if you you know even if you try to sort of break the mold and do new things you're just clumped into the other people who are also breaking the mold and doing new things so it's this idea that like you know i I think is is the difference about whether you're like doing it deliberately then because obviously none of well, because then you get into the problem of death of the author. Death of the author. We, we talked about enough. Yeah. Like at the end of uh, which which episode was that? I think we talked about that at the end of um, Rock and Roller. I guess for me, yeah, we don't want to get into like the death of the author conversation because that's really complicated. But Tarantino's references are deliberate. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like he didn't just like rip off the killing or like Glen Gary, Glen Ross, like in Reservoir Dogs or anything like that. Like I think the whole point is that he takes a lot of the stuff that he grew up on and he goes, "Let me remix it. Let me do something with it." Just as, like, some two easy examples, Django Unchained draws heavily on post-Westerns and slave texts like Mandingo that paints itself as a Southern, allowing them to lean hard, uh, allowing them to lean on the harder they come, and uh, Third Cinema's response to black exploitation. Pulp Fiction relies entirely on the audience's implicit knowledge of gangster films and film noir, somehow making elements of The Godfather, Kiss Me Deadly, and Deliverance into, into like, this cohesive masterpiece. Like, he's this genius that, it's not just that he has a singular vision, but that I, I think the trick to a really good author is not just having a single vision, but being able to actually synthesize your vision and references into something that is like that has substance. Like Michael Bay, say what you will about his, you know, uh, the, the meaning of his texts or whatever. Films. He's really good at synthesizing things into like one clear message, which is like if you're the everyman and you have courage, you will get rewarded with the woman and the job and the success. Like, right. the, the, he's sort of, if, if you're the everyday schlub, you'll get what you want. Like, he, he synthesizes all of this stuff into a really coherent meaning. And I think that's where Tarantino gets complicated because sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And I think this film for me is where I, I kind of fall in that gray area where I might need to see it 10 or 12 more times <laughs> to work out what it's about. Yeah. And even then, I think, you know, you could just come to the conclusion that it's not really about anything. I saw a funny, I saw a meme before I saw this film. 
which was like the meme was like these kids sitting around a table and it's like a YouTube video. And like the title of the YouTube video is, is once upon a time in Hollywood, just drive for boomers. <laughs> and I thought I was like, and then like I watched the film and I was like, yeah, kind of is just kind drive of. for boomers. Yeah. A- apart from the fact that there's just a lot of scenes of people driving and like, it's you interesting. know, yeah. and Cliff is sort of, you know, he's this, he drives pretty quick because he's a stunt driver and clearly knows how to. He's like, yeah, the, the Steve there's Queen there's a lot of driving in this film. So it's... Right. But like, apart from that, you know, drive as a film is like, I would say also quite auteur. Definitely. And, you know, has that sort of aspect of like, you know, it's like a cruisy film throughout and then Until, it just punches you in the yeah. face right at the end. I don't know. Like, are we just getting... Are we like, are we getting more films like that? Where it's just like, it's entirely set up. And then just, like, this massive fucking, like, not even a payoff, just, like, this massive climax right at the end of the film. And then you're just sitting there, like, sorry, what? I don't know that we're getting more of that. I just think the the film, like, prestige cinema, similar right. to prestige TV, that's what it aims to do, right? It's sort of, like, the, the end of Breaking Bad is, like, you spend all this time to this build-up and then there's this, this huge outburst at the end. Like, I think, I, yeah, you've, you've touched on something there because I think when you look at, like, a Michael Bay film, for instance, which is very main, mainstream, it's mostly yeah. action sequences. It's it's this auteur shit. It's this kind of, this whatever this other cinema thing is, it's like, oh, we can't afford to do the, the action sequence. We can't afford to do this. It, and, and so it necessitates that you can't do those constant action scenes. You have to build up to them. Yeah, and it's and it's almost not concerned with keeping the watcher's attention but because of that it kind of you know if if you're the kind of person who doesn't just who doesn't give a shit about film yeah the, like this you'd probably find this movie boring because you'd be like nothing really happens yeah but it, but i guess i guess necessitated or, uh, i guess tarantino's response to that is he writes extremely good dialogue i could honestly watch booth and dalton drive around all day just chatting and just talk yeah because it's f- so well written yeah and i think i think his response to that is you just make it good when people say oh well that nothing happens you go it doesn't matter if nothing happens, it's good. Like that was kind of why yeah. we enjoyed the Nice Guys by Shane Black. Nothing really happens. They they solve yeah. the case or whatever, but like not really. And nothing really happens until the end. But you don't care because it's it's so it's so well written and it's so interesting to just watch this back and forth and this dialogue between these characters. I think that's the sign of like not just a good writer but a good director because it's taking that script and making helping the actors make it interesting right in particular dicaprio is fucking brilliant in this just the irony of him in this role in particular is just really funny because there's the scene where he's reading where he's reading the book about you know he's like explaining the the this the the book to this kid and he sort of like breaks down because he's like oh this is about my life but it's like it's also a little bit of dicaprio in there if you sort of look at his career it's like you know he had Titanic, and then he didn't get an Oscar for about twenty years. <laughs> it's yeah. like, like you know, he eventually got it with um, oh, what film was it? The the one with the bear. He got it for that, Revenant. didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Revenant. He got it. Revenant. Yeah, the Revenant. Yeah. He got it. He got an Oscar Revenant. for Revenant. Yeah. I mean, he was the bad guy in Django Unchained. Right. And he got beat to shit in that film. It's it's a bit like it's a it's kind of meta, and you know, it's it's sort it's of kind of what happens. Yeah, and I think look like, at Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah. I mean, he cheated because he did Hannibal, but like. It's that, it's, yeah, you're right. There is definitely a mirroring. And I think that's why. And, and like, and additionally, you know, he'll like, 
Tarantino's just thrown in real, you know, quote unquote, real people into this film. Because he's just like, fuck it, it's Hollywood. Bruce Lee's in Hollywood. Well, I guess, but he does that with a lot of his work where it's hard to tell if he's trying to imply this is our world or some other version of it. But I guess the inclusion of those real people is like him obviously paying homage to his heroes. But at the same time, it also means that this could have never happened. Because obviously, <laughs> Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's like a fairy tale, right? Yeah. Like Dalton could never have existed. He didn't live next to Tate or Polanski, but it's a cool idea. Like it's it's this sort of... Not even revisionist history, but it's it's historical fiction. And if you told someone it was historical fiction, they would absolutely not watch it because that sounds so boring. <laughs> right. Right. But I think as a genre, I think we might start to see more and more of this moving forward where there is this nostalgia that's been happening where we've seen things getting remade and remixed and things like that. What I'm excited to see is, okay, well, here's a biography, but did it really happen? And, you know, uh, one of the things that I always think about a lot is uh, uh, Neil Gaiman uh, in, in Sandman. Um, his comic book that's a lot about not revisionist history but historical fiction and one of the quotes that i have i haven't written it down i'm trying to remember off the top of my head but it's dream talks about um talking about shakespeare and shakespeare as we've mentioned a lot of times on the show was this kind of larger than life character who wrote these plays to immortalize himself but because the plays were so successful the essence of who he was got lost we don't know much about the man himself uh one of in, in the comic book one of shakespeare's friends hob gadling um, says, well, that, that never really happened, like all this stuff about Shakespeare and, and his son and all these sort of things. And Dream says it need not have happened to have been true because that's not what people remember. <laughs> and and it, it's a, definitely that thing of like, this feels like, this whole film feels like what Tarantino remembers that era to be through the lens of cinema. And I guess that to me is interesting where you're saying like, it doesn't really matter what happened. What matters is how you remember it happening and whether or not this version of Hollywood is better than what we have now and whether the homogeny is better than the division. I think what we're always going to do is look back through these rose tinted glasses at the past and say, wouldn't it have been great if this had happened? Yeah. And eventually that's what you remember happening. That kind of push and pull, I think maybe Tarantino is experiencing that himself in like kind of a meta cinematic way where his old pieces are looked at as these masterpieces Yeah. and his recent films, people don't like no one, you know, puts the hateful eight on the pedestal. They put Reservoir Dogs on. No one says Django Unchained is better than Pulp Fiction. Right. It's almost like he's living through that meta experience, and maybe that maybe he's trying to say something about that. Yeah. But I think if we come back to it in a few years, we might have a different view. I don't know. Yeah, I hope all the actors in this film go and get checked for lung cancer because man, they so fucking smoking. down those they down those ciggies. That's like it's insane. It's a lot. They're smashing like one a scene. It's honestly, it's Mad Men. It's a levels. lot of ciggies. It's not as much as Mad Men, but it's pretty Jesus close. Christ! It's yeah. like are there like I I don't know this. Like, are there fake cinema ciggies? But I, the thing is, I think, like, fakes, like, they don't look fake at all. They look 100% like real cigarettes. Oh, no, they, they have fake ones, because the, the whole cast of Mad Men is always smoking fake cigarettes or whatever. I reckon you DiCaprio usually, probably I think smoked you could, real uh, ones. Yeah, fucking absolutely. Because he... You, he's the kind of you've seen his he's dad, the kind of lunatic. He absolutely though, yeah. would. Go get checked for lung cancer, you guys. I don't want you to die of lung yeah, cancer. Not after. It's not worth it. I mean, it might be worth it. it. Might be worth it. It's pretty it's, good. It's a pretty good film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I think we've yeah, it's the right yeah. film. This this whole I just want to go watch more Mad Men now because that whole era is something I love. Right. Uh, the revisionist version of it's so fascinating. <laughs> so doesn't yeah, not go. the real stuff. Get that real shit no, out. No, it's here. less interesting. Like memory is this living thing, and I think yeah, it's it's cool to see Tarantino really really say thank you and make an homage to that stuff. So yeah, it definitely definitely will come back to it at some point. But I think for now, let's let it sit. Let's go watch something else. Probably Madman. Uh, speaking of something else, do you have any recommendations? Absolutely not. Oh, not okay. Uh, I Taylor Swift's new album just came out, so I've been bumping that. Yeah, it's really good. It's um very like Avril Lavigne from like the early two thousands. It's kind of cool. Um, mm, yeah. Okay. Weirdly into it. Uh, what else have I been watching? Oh, I want to shout out. Um, 
Luke Kedgel, who's a, an Australian comedian, has been doing a, a sort of an episode by episode reaction to The Bachelor, which is currently airing in Australia. But it's oh, get that shit out of here. But it's very funny. It's just him and his girlfriend riffing on it for like twenty minutes. Okay, good. It's extremely good. I hate that guy. And he's also in love with Osher as much as I am. So, and I've just started playing Deep Sky Derelicts, which is a similar to Dark, very similar to Darkest Dungeon, but it's a card game. Oh, okay. oh it's a card deck yeah. fighter. I don't know what you what the genre like. Like like Slay the Spire kind of thing. Oh okay. yeah, those games are. They don't really have thing. like a name like for that. Roguelike. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it yet, but we'll we'll we'll, we'll see. Um, otherwise, where can people find us? Facebook at DCMworks Social. YouTube. YouTube.com slash DCMworks. Twitter at DCM underscore works. Patreon. Patreon.com slash DCMworks. Uh, I was gonna do some plugs for Patreon, but we're not gonna. So see you next week. Well, that's not what I was gonna say. Okay. <laughs> What I was going to say was we have a we have a pretty big video project coming up. Actually, we've got a few, but uh, one that is pretty near and dear to my heart that is kind of how this company started should be going up uh, live to the public about... It's an unfortunate tale. Two or three weeks from now. Uh, if you're a patron, you can actually watch the full thing right now. Um, it's probably the earliest exclusive we've done, and a few patrons have kind of messaged me and been like, yo, this is something. <laughs> so I think it's like one of the craziest things we're going to put out. It's pretty fucking, and it, I, fucking wild. Hopefully it's going to dictate the direction of that content we do moving forward. So keep an eye out for that. And then you also get like, we're also going to post like extended interviews from content like that. So if we talk to someone, we're going to post the full thing on Patreon. Uh, you get access to our post show for art for artists, which is like an extra 20 minutes of us gaffing around and just chilling having a goof and we're going to record that after this so the only way to get access to that currently is through our patreon uh because we haven't f- figured out the live stream thing yet also we have a discord server yeah now. it's fun you can hang out there and chat we post memes. stuff we're listening to less memes than i thought it's mostly like links to stuff that we're enjoying yeah um the occasional meme you can also jump in there if you're a patron you get access to special uh chat rooms and that's the best place to see like what's coming up soon if you're not a, a paid subscriber because we post sneak peeks there all the time so keep an eye out for that. Also, you can get notified directly on your phone when we have some new content. So go check that out. Otherwise, if you want to follow us individually, I'm at DCMI Head Pie. I'm at Little Citrus. And we'll see you guys next week. Cliff Booth, don't... Speaking's going to be hard for me, so just bear with me today. (laughs)